Now you listen to me, mister. I work for a living. And I mean real work, not writing down gobbledygook. The other day, I invited a friend of mine over. And this friend is a big politics and history guy like yours truly. So we always get along, even though we don't necessarily have the same views on everything. After a few hours of our conversation and uh, after maybe a few drinks, we got into this discussion about what the future holds and what things are going to look like in the next 10 or 20 years. And we both had this feeling like there was something big that was going to happen in the future that we will feel the tectonic plates of history move underneath our feet because we were feeling the tremors of something happening this year. That this year feels like we are setting off a series of events that will lead to a drastic change in human history. Neither of us knew when that change was going to happen or what that change would look like. All that we could agree upon is that we both felt like it was coming. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I kind of want to feel that moment where history changes beneath my feet. Where I live through a moment in time where I know that our history is not going to be the same after this event is over. During my lifetime so far, the only event I believe that has truly moved the plates of history has been 9-11. And when that happened, I wasn't even a teenager. So I just didn't have the mental capacity, I suppose, to truly grasp what had happened. But I think a lot of people would say, be careful what you wish for, Spencer, because you just might get it. And more often than not, when those plates move, it's not a pretty process. But there have been times in history when people in that time could notice the signs of the historical plates shifting underneath their feet. And they had the option to assist that shift, to make that shift less violent than it would be when it eventually could be held back no longer. And when these people delayed that shift, when it inevitably came, they oftentimes wished they had just let it smoothly transition when they had the opportunity to do so. And that's the kind of time I feel like we're living in right now. The time when change is coming and we have the opportunity now to usher it in smoothly. And if we don't do it smoothly now, then it will happen violently a decade or two from now. And whatever this change is, I feel like it will be heralded in by our generation. Every year, there are more and more of us becoming politically active and achieving our political consciousness. And every year, there are less and less of the older generation who had established the system we're living in now. And I feel like a lot of us don't like the system we're living in now. We don't feel like the table is stacked in our favor. We want to change the table. And many of us probably want to upend that table. And sooner or later, 
it will happen. Sooner or later, our generation is going to put its mark on history and change it forever. The questions of what that mark will look like and how it will be achieved are still very much in the air. But we can look back at previous times in history and use them to help guide us through the murky waters that lie ahead. To do that, let's go back to a point in history just before another one of those historical tectonic shifts. Let's go back to Tsarist Russia, 1905. But we have to set the scene a little bit here, and we have to bear in mind that Russia does have a very distinct culture in comparison to where most of my audience is from, which is from North America or Western European countries. And one of those really distinct features of Russian history, and a lot of people would argue the Russian people, not something I would argue, but we'll talk about that a little later, is this idea that the Russians are just in love with their autocrats, that autocrats will always be their preferred form of government. And that is because you can argue throughout Russia's entire history and make a decent point even up to the present day, it has been ruled by autocrats. And when you start to read about the absolute power that was ushered in by Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, as he's most often known, and then solidified by Peter the Great, it's really quite extraordinary how much power these czars had. They were absolute monarchs in every way, shape, and form. They had no checks, no bounces, and could do pretty much whatever they wanted. For example, many of Peter the Great's advisors argued that the monarchy should be hereditary, that whosoever the firstborn son should take charge of the throne next. Peter the Great said, nah, we're not going to have that happen. Instead, what's going to happen is that the Tsar can choose whoever he wants to be the next successor. It doesn't matter if they're male, female, young, old, royal, not royal. The Tsar gets to choose because the Tsar has absolute power. And I want to stress this. The Tsars in Russia had more power than the absolute monarchs of Western Europe. I mean, the absolute monarchs in Western Europe still, theoretically, had to answer to God, but God has nothing on the Tsar. In fact, in many ways, you could argue that the Tsar is seen as a god. And this is something that the Russians embraced, at least in the historical sources. And you have to bear in mind that in the overwhelming majority of cases, these historical sources were censored by the Tsarist regime. In any case, though, every country was seen to have something special, something that made them unique and was a aspect of their culture that could be celebrated. And for the Russians, it was their very close relationship to the Tsar, that the Tsar was their mother or father, and the peasants were their children, and the peasants loved their parents, whoever they might happen to be. So that's where you can kind of see this idea that the Russians just absolutely loved their autocrats emerged from. As well, unique to Russia, was this notion that Russia was so backwards 
that the only way it could become a modern country was if there was some strong absolute leader who could drag Russia into modernity, kicking and screaming if it needed to. And that's another theme you'll see when studying Soviet history as well. And in general, these Russian czars fell into three distinct types. The first type is the Grozny Tsar, which means the Great Tsar. And the idea of the Grozny Tsar was embodied in Peter the Great. So the Grozny Tsars are these Tsars that are seen as large and in charge. That they ruled with an iron fist, but were not afraid of getting down and dirty when they needed to. One thing you'll notice about Russian leaders is that they seem to love physical activities. They love going swimming. They love going hunting. Peter the Great, for example, just loved woodwork. He would build furniture. He learned how to build boats. He was a guy who liked to work with his hands. Not to mention, he was great in just about every aspect, right? He was apparently a very tall man, six foot seven, some people say. Not to mention, he was supposedly completely ripped. The kind of guy you don't want to mess with. The kind of guy that when he would go to international events would definitely stand out. This giant, almost seven feet tall, ripped Russian, wearing his extravagant military outfit that he would often wear from place to place, he sent a message that Russia's not to be messed with. And this description might sound like someone else you may know, and that is Vladimir Putin. And I feel that Vladimir Putin embodies this idea of the Grozny Tsar so well. And I kind of laugh, right? Because you'll hear people say, oh, Vladimir Putin wants to bring back the Soviet Union. I don't feel that way at all. Vladimir Putin wants to go back even further. He wants to bring back the absolute power of the Tsarist regime. And he completely plays up this idea of the man's man, right? He's always walking around without a shirt, going on these extreme physical activities, and tries to give off this message that Russia is not to be messed with. So when you wonder why Vladimir Putin seems like he's kind of a relic from a bygone age, it's because he's trying to play to these stereotypes in Russian history of the Grozny Tsar to solidify his image, I guess you could say. The second type of Tsar is called the Tishaishi Tsar. And Tishaishi in Russian means something along the lines of caring or kind. So the caring, loving Tsar is what is embodied in the Tishaishi Tsar. And the Tishaishi Tsars are exemplified by Elizabeth and Catherine the Great, the two very well-known female czars of the Russian Empire. And I personally find both these women endlessly fascinating because they represent one of the only times in history in which women had complete and absolute power over a nation-state of people. Beyond that, though, especially exemplified in Elizabeth was this idea that she wanted to enrich the lives of the everyday Russian peasant, that she wanted to take care of them, make them happier, make them have more fun, 
and all the records from her reign talk about what a great time everybody was having. There's lots of literature about love and about romance and about living life to its fullest. And personally, I think the Russians haven't seen a Tishaishi ruler in a very long time, and they probably need another one to come up and run the country for a little bit. Anyway, the last czar doesn't have a name. The last type of czar are just the czars that are grossly incompetent. And I feel like you can file every single Russian czar into one of those three categories. Grozny, Tishaishi, or incompetent. And for the purposes of our story now, the czar we're talking about fell into the last category, in my opinion. And this czar is not a czar that has a uniform historical consensus about the kind of man he was and the impact he had on history. And that is, of course, Tsar Nicholas II, the last Tsar. There are many people who see Tsar Nicholas as a tragic figure, a figure of unfortunate circumstances. And then, of course, there are historians who take a much more negative view of him. They talk about his authoritarian nature. They talk about how he didn't seem to be a very strong leader and how he would block or flip-flop on important reforms in Russian society. And in case you couldn't tell, personally, I have a rather unfavorable view of Tsar Nicholas II. I feel that if you did such a bad job as Tsar, that if the entire monarchy fell because of you, then you definitely fall into the incompetent category of czars. But that's just how I personally feel. And I'm sure there are many of you out there who disagree with my assessment on Nicholas II, and I'd love to hear your personal opinions about the man. But let's talk a little bit about what Tsar Nicholas was like. And I personally don't feel he was a bad person in any way, shape, or form. He was the kind of man who kept a lot of records. You can go back and read his diary, and his diary is always very methodical. It's like a log. It's like at 8.30, I got up and ate breakfast with the family. At 10.30, I met with various dignitaries. At 11.30, I hung out with Rasputin. Well, he didn't really write it in such colloquial terms, but you get what I mean. What is interesting, though, is that he wrote almost all his logs in English rather than Russian, so... It's not like they needed to be translated for us. You can go back and read these logs at any time you wish. However, what's unfortunately missing from a lot of these logs is what he actually discussed in these meetings. All that we know is that he had them. He never really vocalized what he said, what he thought, or anything along those lines. So that's where a lot of the mystery around Nicholas comes in. We know what he did, but in a lot of cases, we don't know what he thought or what he said. With the major exception being his correspondences with his wife. And you can tell from these correspondences that they had a very good relationship. That these two genuinely loved and cared for one another, which was rare back in those times. Especially among quote-unquote blue blood marriages. They also had a son who was a hemophiliac, which is a disease where your blood doesn't clot properly, 
So if you get even the smallest cut, it could be potentially fatal, especially back in the early 20th century. And that was the main reason why Grigory Rasputin fell in with the Tsarist family, because he seemed to have some sort of mystical power where he could make their son feel better to a point which stumped physicians at the time and still continues to perplex physicians and historians about exactly what it was that Rasputin was doing to help out Tsar Nicholas's son. But we're not going to talk about Rasputin for now. What I do want to get across is that the Tsar was a decent man who clearly loved his family. Unfortunately, he isn't the type of strong leader you want to have running a country in a time of decisive need. And Alexander would flip-flop a lot about the kind of czar he wanted to be. Did he want to be this Grozny authoritarian czar, or did he want to tackle the challenges that were facing him head-on in that period of Russian history, which is a great clamor and desire for change? It was becoming clearer and clearer that the Russian people did not like the Tsarist regime as it stood, and they wanted change. They didn't know what that change would look like. All that they knew is they wanted more of a say in the political process. They wanted civic engagement. And early on, that's where it looked like things were headed. That Tsar Nicholas was starting to make more and more concessions to the Russian parliament, which is called the Duma. Interesting trivia, Duma comes from the root of the Russian word to think, so that's where the name of the parliament comes from. But after he expanded his powers, he would backtrack on those reforms or do something that would completely negate the forward progress of those reforms. So, for example, he would decrease the censorship limits on certain newspapers and outlets. But at the same time, he would give the Russian secret police more power to prosecute dissenters. And these kind of flip-flops and weak reforms did absolutely nothing to quell the clamoring for change in Russian society. In fact, it just stoked the fires even more. But in some ways, you might be able to understand his want to clamp down on democratic reform. Because... This was a very dangerous time that he lived in. This was a time when terrorism was abound. And this part to me is very interesting in comparing and contrasting the terrorists of the early 20th century to the terrorists of the early 21st century. So who were these early 20th century terrorists, and I should also add late 19th century terrorists? Well, for the most part, they were the extremists in society. They were the radical socialists, the anarchists, the type of people who wanted to bring down the system by any means necessary. And what these terrorists believed in was the propaganda of the deed. And this was a notion that the attention, the attitude shift you would create through an act of terror against a high-ranking czarist official would be worth the risk involved. And 
it would actually have an impact in changing society. Because these radicals argued that we had let these liberals and academics try and run the change camp too long, and they haven't achieved anything in over a century. So we're going to come in, and we're actually going to attack the structures we don't like. We're going to use violence to achieve our ends, because it's obvious that nonviolent methods haven't been working. And these terrorists were very successful. They were successful in actually killing a previous czar and taking out the majority of high-ranking czarist officials in the government. So these guys were deadly, organized, and successful. And that's something that's very different about these terrorists versus our 21st century terrorists that we talk about today. And that is that these guys would generally, not always though, go after specific high-ranking party officials. They wouldn't attack mass groups of innocent people. And I wonder if part of the reason why the ISIS and Islamic terrorists we talk about today don't attack specific people within Western governments is because they can't. Security has evolved a lot in the last 100 years, and they just don't have the capability to assassinate the president. I'm sure they would do it if they could, and they probably have some plans to try and do it, but assassinating a president is not an easy task nowadays, so instead they attack the low-hanging fruit. I don't know, just a kooky theory, Maybe something to think about. So let's put ourselves in Tsar Nicholas's shoes for a second. His father, Tsar Alexander III, had had an assassination attempt on his life. He survived, but just barely. So imagine you're an incoming president, and you're an incoming president because your predecessor had been wounded in an assassination attack by ISIS. He survived, but he was no longer able to fulfill his duties. How would that change your mindset coming in to the Oval Office? So when you think about it that way, maybe you can kind of start to understand why he wouldn't be as excited to give up a lot of his absolute power. So this is what Russia looks like in 1905, you have this great clamoring for democratic reform. You have these constant terrorist attacks taking out party officials. And then you throw in one more ingredient into the mix, and that is a war. And not a war that went well for your side. I'm talking about, of course, the Russo-Japanese War. So some of the background to this war... Russia was trying to expand its influence in the Pacific. They were trying to expand their influence into the Sakhalin Islands, into Manchuria, into Korea. And they were doing so very aggressively and not to the liking of the Japanese, who were also trying to expand their influence in the region. So the Russians were provoking the Japanese, but ultimately it was the Japanese who declared war first. And in a move that was kind of like the proto-Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attacked without warning and without any declaration of war, 
the Russian Far East Fleet, which was stationed in Port Arthur. This, of course, shocked and enraged the Russians. Unfortunately, the ensuing war would not go very well for them. The Russians and Japanese would fight a few naval battles and a few land battles, and when it looked like the war was going against Russia, Tsar Nicholas redeployed the fleet which was stationed in St. Petersburg, the Baltic Fleet, as it was called. It was renamed to the 2nd Far East Fleet, or the 2nd Pacific Fleet, and they had to sail all the way from St. Petersburg through the Baltic Sea, down past Spain, down past Africa, turn the African Horn, come up, sail past India, around India, up through China, all the way to the Tsushima Straits that divide Japan and Korea. The eight-month journey of this fleet is one of those great historical tales that almost nobody knows about. The admiral in charge of this fleet, a guy by the name of Rosasvensky, was known for having a severe anger problem. He would go off the rails at the drop of a hat and was known for bashing in the teeth of his sailors, or he would take his binoculars and smash them against his sailors or the wall and throw them overboard in these fits of rage. So wisely, when they were supplying this fleet, they made sure to include an extra stash of binoculars to compensate for the ones they knew Rosasvensky would destroy. Also, because it was such a long journey with not very many friendly refueling stations for the Russians, they had to pack as much coal as they could into the ships. So much so that it would create this dark and gritty haze that would swirl around on the inside of these ships. And this effect was apparently so depressing that several sailors decided to outright kill themselves. By the time these sailors had reached India, the heat had become so much that uniforms would in some cases completely disintegrate. And more often than not, you would see sailors strolling around on the decks naked. And while in this tropical setting, the Russians would pick up all sorts of exotic pets. Toads, lemurs, snakes, lizards, and in some cases, crocodiles. Sailors reported being afraid to go to sleep because they feared that one of these great beasts would somehow navigate their way into their rooms and eat them. And while at this point supplies were dwindling, the captain of the cruiser Aurora had actually found a large boa constrictor and took it on as a pet. And this lucky snake got double rations while everybody starved and a ration of cognac. Why a snake needs cognac? I have no idea. Another great story is this story of a monkey being brought on board one of the ships. And at one point, the monkey had seized the religious orthodox icon of the ship and threw it overboard, earning him the name the Iconoclast. Finally, this dogged fleet had reached the Straits of Tsushima, where they proceeded to get their asses completely handed to them by the Japanese. The Japanese, who had pretty much rebuilt their entire military from scratch after the Meiji Restoration, had wisely decided to copy the two most successful naval and army elements in the world at that time. So their navy was based off the British Navy, 
and most of their ships were actually built in London and included the most advanced naval technologies of the time. And their army was based off the German army of the time and was equally as effective. At this point, the Russians had lost pretty much their entire fleet to the Japanese, and it was time to sue for peace. The Russians had played up how easy this war was going to be, oftentimes using blatant racism to put down the Japanese. So such a bitter and crushing defeat at the hands of a non-European power certainly shocked the Russian people and did absolutely nothing to shore up Tsar Nicholas's already tenuous grasp on the Russian Empire. Cue the 1905 revolution. And this revolution started with people just deciding not to work, deciding not to do anything. In response to these protests, the Tsarist government ended up opening fire on a group of protesters, killing a thousand of them in an event which became known as Bloody Sunday. Shortly after this, the peasants would start joining in the revolt, and then things would really get bad for the Tsarist regime as sailors would start to mutiny. Eventually, the Tsarist government would have to capitulate, and they drafted up a new constitution, which was in line with what the Russian people were demanding. As is often the case when people are demanding change, they're not entirely sure what the change will look like or how they're going to get there, but there were two consistent themes that the Russian people were clamoring for, and that is more democracy and basic human civil rights. The Tsar agreed to these terms and gave the Duma more power and gave Russians legal civil rights. Unfortunately, it was all really a fig leaf. The main issue being is that the Tsar maintained the right to veto any legislation coming out of the Duma. As well, he had the power to create a state of emergency which effectively gave him absolute power once again. And there was conveniently no rules about how long he could maintain this state of emergency. So overall, the legacy of the 1905 revolution is that while the Tsar did cave, it was just enough so he could hold on to power. No real change was actually accomplished. So this issue of change would lie dormant in Russian society for just over a decade until the Bolshevik party under Vladimir Lenin was able to finally seize and consolidate power in the ashes of World War One. The Bolsheviks, by the way, did play a role in the 1905 revolution along with their other party, the Mensheviks, but the Bolshevik party was nowhere near as well organized as it was in 1905 as it was in 1917. And you want to talk about far-reaching change. The revolution of 1917 certainly brought the change the Russian people were clamoring for, but you know the old saying, be careful what you wish for. So what was the whole point of me telling you this? Well, let's end this podcast in relating this period back to our own time. While certainly not the same time period, there are some interesting similarities. One is a clamor for change. We see people all over the world 
clamoring for change in their societies, but nowhere is it more evident than in the United States of America. It's becoming clearer and clearer that the system the United States operates under is simply not working for the majority of its citizens, and people desperately want to change it. As well, another similarity is you have an entrenched power structure who is doing everything it can to delay or what its ultimate goal is to prevent change. And this is very clearly evident in both the Republican and Democratic Party establishments. Both parties have candidates who very much want to change the system and have a swath of supporters who are fighting to change the system in their respective parties. And the power brokers within those parties are increasingly becoming more desperate to prevent that change. Another similarity you have is war. And while the United States certainly hasn't experienced any defeats quite on the scale as the Russians did in the Russo-Japanese War, their wars in the Middle East play a different role on the psyche of Americans. It seems like these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that even though they are largely wrapped up and are certainly not executed on a scale to which they were several years ago, the damage that they have caused in the psyche of the American populace is nowhere even close to becoming remedied. It's like an ulcer in your body that's continually ejecting toxic bacteria into your body stream. And eventually, over time, that toxic bacteria is going to continually build up, slowly, albeit surely. And eventually, that toxicity is going to overwhelm the body, and the body is either going to shut down or reject it violently. And that wound needs to be calcified in the American population, and it simply hasn't yet. So while the setbacks represented in America's wars in the Middle East are nowhere near as dramatic as the setbacks represented to the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War, their roles in provoking a change in public society are similar, I believe. And lastly, you have the aspect of terrorism, which is continually fanning the fires, making the governments of our time look weak and inept, and causing people to lose faith in those institutions. So all these factors are coming together in a similar way, creating a fierce outcry for change in our society. And I want to end this podcast on this note. How different would history be if the 1905 revolution had actually accomplished its goals? If the Tsar had actually fulfilled the wants and needs of the Russian people. I think you could make a strong case that communism would never have taken hold in Russia. And I think you can also make a case that because the Tsar delayed that change that was obviously coming in Russian society, he ultimately only ended up in making that change more violent and more radical than it could have been. And I think the historical lesson is clear here. When change comes knocking at your door, sometimes you just have to peaceably let it in. Because if you don't, 
it's going to smash down your door and burn down your house. So I feel now we have the opportunity to enact a 1905-esque revolution, a smoother transitional change and a dismantling of the old power brokers in society. And I hope this time we will let change in peacefully so it doesn't have to break down the door later. Welcome everybody to the second segment of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downey. And, as always, we'll start off with some current events. And, unfortunately, I didn't get to do an update last week, so there's been a lot going on. I'm not going to talk about everything. We've had quite a few contests in the American presidential primary since our last episode. Almost all of those have been won by Bernie Sanders by rather large margins, and I always love how media outlets will try and spin his victories. My personal favorite is when they came out and declared that Hawaii was not a diverse state, even though it's the only state in the Union that has a majority non-white population. And then, of course, he's riding high after a big win in Wisconsin, much bigger than projected. And then we have Wyoming voting on Saturday, and that's another state projected to go into his column. The size and scale of these victories has absolutely put Bernie Sanders back in the race. But the real test is coming up on April 19th, which is the primaries in New York. And if Bernie Sanders can win in New York, then I don't know if Hillary Clinton can recover from such a devastating psychological blow. So this campaign just seems to be heating up more and more. It's been a story of twists and turns and punches and counterpunches. And the reason why I can't stop talking about it is because I personally find it so endlessly entertaining. And uh, that's all I'm going to say on the Democratic side. I know we take up a lot of time talking about these primaries, but uh, they're important. There's no question about it. Who's going to become the next president of the United States affects just about everybody in the world. On the Republican side, there's been only one primary, I believe, since we last spoke, and that's been in Wisconsin. Ted Cruz won it by a very healthy margin. By such a healthy margin, in fact, it may put into question Donald Trump's ability to lock up the nomination before the convention. However, with New York coming up, Donald Trump is expected to do exceedingly well in that state. In fact, if he doesn't get above 50% in the Republican primary there, I think it'll be a defeat for him. So for now, we can just grab our popcorn and sit back and watch these candidates on both sides continue to tear one another apart. But let's move on to the thing I really want to talk about in this current event segment, which is the releasing of these so-called Panama Papers. And to me, this relates very much so back to the topic we were discussing today. Because it's reasons like this as to why people 
are fed up with the system we have currently and why people want to change the system we have currently. So for those of you who don't know, these Panama Papers are a leak which exposes the inner workings of a very secretive Panamanian law firm which helps politicians and powerful figures from across the globe launder and hide their money in Panamanian banks in order to avoid taxes and having to report income in their own countries. And what's amazing about these papers is how deeply they expose the width and depth of corruption throughout the world currently. You had Russian officials, Chinese officials, American officials, former conservative MPs, and those are UK MPs, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see some Canadian conservative MPs on there. The leaks have already claimed one casualty, which is the Prime Minister of Iceland, who was shown to have ties and be funneling money into these Panamanian banks. I saw this amazing Icelandic poll showing that now over 50% of Icelanders want the Pirate Party to form the next government. And the Pirate Party is basically a one-issue party that speaks about internet freedom and allowing people to access information and content easily and quickly on the internet. Anyway, these papers expose what people are so sick and tired of. And that is powerful individuals being able to use and exploit loopholes without any consequences whatsoever. I'm sure the overwhelming majority of people out there have no issues with people being rich and accumulating vast sums of wealth. But you gotta pay your freaking taxes, man. You have to support the system which made you so wealthy in the first place. I hope, beyond hope though, that this will change now. And if it doesn't change, well, then we go back to our theme earlier. If you don't let this change in peacefully, it's going to knock down your door in the future. Before we move on to questions though, I just want to address something from the last podcast. Dieter wrote in with a question and I didn't fully answer it and I just wanted to answer the part that I missed right here. He asked, and I quote, Another thing you could touch on in your current events section is the German regional election that just happened, mostly focused around whether or not the German people would punish or reward Merkel's immigration policies. So, unfortunately, I just don't know a lot about the regional elections in Germany. I think regional elections just get to a point where they exist on such a micro level that unless you're living in that country, it's very difficult to get your head around them. But I do want to focus on this idea of how the German people are reacting to Merkel's immigration policy. Are they going to reward her or punish her? And I've been speaking to a lot of Germans on this issue, as many Germans as I can possibly find who will talk to me about this issue because I'm interested to hear their opinion. So if you're German, please write in. Let me know what the attitude of the German people is right now. But from all the German people I've talked to, it seems that they're mad and only getting matter. I honestly haven't spoken to one single German person 
who supports Angela Merkel's refugee immigration policy. I read another great article that talked about German schools removing pork options from the menu and certain restaurants removing pork options from the menu. And I remember thinking how ludicrous this seemed as Germany is known as the land of delicious pork sausages. And I just couldn't believe this. This has clearly become a bridge too far. There's absolutely nothing wrong with providing halal and other options that accommodate Islamic diets. Middle Eastern food is fantastic, and I think halal meats actually taste better than regular cut and butchered meats. But that's just my opinion. But to take options away from other people, especially options which are such a staple of their diet, just doesn't make any sense to me. Multiculturalism is a great thing. I believe 100% in multiculturalism, but it shouldn't limit the options available to you. It should expand them. If you're limiting options to try and be accommodating to multicultural societies, then you're doing it wrong. So I wish I could have given more insight, but this is an issue I'm interested in. It's an issue I'd like to know more about. So if you're a German person out there who wants to weigh in on this debate, I would love to hear it. Now, let's get to some questions. Our first question comes from Sergio Rivera. And he writes in and says, I know you like Marcus Aurelius. So how do you explain Commodus, his son and successor, who brought to an end the period of the great empires and revived an Aronian style of rule? I wish you the best of luck with your new job, Sergio. Thanks for writing in, Sergio. I really appreciate the question. And I do kind of want to touch a little bit on this whole job situation here. Because the job I'm doing right now is so different from anything I've ever done before. It's completely expanding my horizons. And I know it will have an impact on how I see the world. And some of that is definitely going to filter in into this podcast. So I mentioned this job was in the justice system. And specifically, it's part of law enforcement. Not going to say for who or what exactly I'm doing. But I'm currently going through the training academy right now, it's, and it's an absolutely brutal experience. The funny thing is, for the first time in my life, I'm actually doing military drill. As a guy who studied military history for the better portion of his life, I quickly learned that I suck big time at the whole drill aspect of the military. But otherwise, I'm learning a lot, and I think it's really the exact type of experience I needed to have in my life at this point. Anyway, let's go back to the question. So, the issue of Commodus is really, I think, Marcus Aurelius's major mistake. But it's not difficult to understand why he elevated his son to the position of emperor. So, in case you don't know, Commodus is Marcus Aurelius's son. He was an atrocious emperor. He was selfish, brash, seemingly unintelligent, basically the opposite of his father. He was played on the big screen by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Gladiator. But overall, definitely not the type of emperor 
you wanted to have running a massive empire. He would be one of those emperors who was assassinated rather than died of natural causes. The one problem Marcus Aurelius did here was break the tradition, I guess. We talked about in the episode about Marcus Aurelius, the period known as the Five Great Emperors. And what's really interesting about this period is that each emperor never named one of their sons as a successor. They would always name someone else as a successor, someone who wasn't related to them through blood. And it just kind of happened this way because none of them had heirs to pass anything down to. It just ended up that none of these five great emperors had a son and heir, except for Marcus Aurelius. So you have to ask yourself, what the heck was he going to do? As someone who is a stoic moral philosopher, could he justify not giving the empire to his son? And if he could justify it, how could he ensure the empire wouldn't be torn apart in a civil war after his death because Commodus certainly would have taken up arms and tried to overthrow whatever ruler happened to be chosen by his father. So what are his options really? Does he kill his own son? Can you imagine having to kill your own son? Especially when you're someone like Marcus Aurelius who lives up to these prescribed moral and ethical codes. So looking over the options that Marcus had, none of them are particularly appealing. You can either A, instill someone besides Commodus as emperor and not kill him and risk the chance of civil war. You can kill Commodus and put in your chosen successor, or you can just let Commodus inherit the throne and cross your fingers and hope for the best. So he had a pretty tough call to make. And overall, I think it's the call that just about anyone else would have made. So it sucks that history turned out the way it did, but when you look at the picture in its holistic context, none of the options he had were very good. So I think he took what is the most logical course of action. Thanks for the question, Sergio. I hope that was a good enough answer. Our next question comes in from Eric Kane, and Eric Kane has a simple question that is by no means easy to answer, and that is, what are your thoughts and feelings on religion? Well, I think most of you probably know that officially I ascribe myself as an atheist, and when I was younger, I was much more radical about it, I guess you could say. I was definitely one of those types of atheists that would always get in religious people's faces and try and challenge them and start arguments and, you know, just kind of being an overall not nice person on the subject, I guess you could say. As I've gotten older, I've definitely mellowed out. I see the inherent value of religion and the good that it brings into a lot of people's lives. And I don't want to deny that good to anybody. If this is a vessel you use to improve your life and make you a better person, then I have absolutely no problem with that. It's a consistent theme 
as I've gotten older, I've just cared less and less what other people choose to do with their lives. And I've become a bigger and bigger advocate for letting people do what they want to in their lives. And I have a theory as to why that is. I think it's because as I've taken on more responsibility, as I've aged, uh, graduated university, trying to start a career, getting married, I just don't have the time in my life anymore to care about what other people choose to do with theirs. I'm too busy trying to manage my own life than to give you unwanted assistance on how to manage yours. I'd much rather sit down with you and have a conversation about what you think and what you feel. And not in an antagonistic way, but rather in a way as two adults just trying to figure out this crazy world that we all live in. One of the things I've prided myself in my life is my ability to bridge the gap between people who have vastly different opinions and feelings as to what I do. And that's because after a long and arduous journey of self-reflection, I came to the realization that you can't quickly label and write off people based on what their opinions, beliefs, or ideologies happen to be. Labels are cheap and, more often than not, almost entirely meaningless. You know, there's a human being sitting there across from you, and I'd rather have an interesting conversation with that human being than berate them for what they choose to believe. So, I guess that's my answer on religion, is that you have the right to your own beliefs, and I absolutely respect that. I'm not going to think less of anybody for the type of religion they choose to ascribe to. And if, for whatever reason, you choose not to give that respect back to me, that doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to give the same respect I'd always given to you. Thanks for writing in, Eric. I hope that answered your question. Our last question comes from Kajartan, and he has a long question, but I'm going to pare it down a little bit, so I'm going to pare it down and go from there. Kajartan, by the way, is from Iceland, so... I'm sure he has some great insight into how the Panama Papers are currently changing the political landscape of that country. I also want to know a little bit about this Icelandic pirate party and exactly what they stand for. In any case, let's get down to the question. He writes, Political stagnation is bad, and let's corruption brew unchecked. Our independence party, our meaning Iceland, gained the largest share of the votes from 1997 to 2009, when the government fell to a vote of no confidence or for 20 elections. It also formed a coalition government from 1983 to 2009, and we have had the same prime minister from 1991 to 2004, who later chaired the board of governors for Iceland's largest bank, from 2005 to 2009. And after that, he became the lead editor of our second biggest newspaper, where he still works. Our current president, Ulfar Rangar, has also served for 20 years, but legally cannot be affiliated with a political party. It was during that time frame when the banks were privatized, we strengthened our ties with America, our government supported the Iraq War, which was the only war in Iceland's history that we have not been neutral in, that's an interesting fact, and introduced major tax cuts. 
including abolishing the net wealth tax, which, while seemed great to us at the time, laid the seeds for corruption and wealth privilege. I am not just saying this because they are a right-wing party, since history has shown us that left-wing parties that never leave and have as many, if not more, problems. I just don't think it is healthy for a nation that lets any party get to form the government for more than three elections. The parliament needs to get dusted once in a while. And then he mentions that he's going to send another email for the next podcast that will give a little bit more insight into this whole Panama Papers fallout, which I'm very excited for. Anyway, thanks for reading. Kajartan. Personally, I thought that insight into Iceland was fascinating, but I want to touch on the core of this question, which is the idea that parties that have held power for too long need to get removed every so often. And that's a type of sentiment that I can agree with 100%, even if they're left-leaning parties. For example, both the Liberal parties in British Columbia and Ontario here in Canada, I think, have been in power way too long. Although the Liberal Party in British Columbia is really not a left-leaning party, they're more closely associated with the Federal Conservatives. But let's talk about the Ontario Liberals just a little bit, because they've been in the news here, at least, quite frequently. It's become clearer and clearer that the Liberal Party of Ontario is just about as corrupt and inept as any party you can imagine. For example, they recently had a by-election, and a by-election is an election here when a member of parliament steps down or is otherwise incapable to continue serving. Therefore, they need to hold another election to elect a new member of parliament, and these by-elections are elections that happen in single ridings outside a general election period. So in this recent by-election that happened in Ontario, the Liberal Party used a loophole in Canadian funding regulations and was able to amass a fundraising amount of $1.6 million, I believe despite spending only 200000 in the election itself. So they just used loopholes to stash a bunch of cash in the Liberal Party coffers in preparation for the next election, which I am almost 100% sure they will lose. But stranger things have happened. The main problem is that all of the party leaders in Ontario are pretty unpopular and not exactly the type of stock that you would want running any type of government or political organization, at least in my opinion. So anyway, all I'm trying to say here is that left-wing governments which have remained in power for too long eventually succumb to the same trappings that all governments can after long periods of time in power. They become complacent, they become corrupt, but worst of all, parties that have been in power for a long period of time start to take the voters for granted. They just seem to assume that they'll come out and vote for them no matter what they do. And honestly, why wouldn't they? When you talk about the Independence Party in Iceland, a party which had won 20 elections in a row, why wouldn't they start taking the voters for granted? Why wouldn't they just start assuming people were going to show up for them no matter what? 
And I think this brings up a really interesting conversation about term limits. I used to be against term limits. I used to think they were undemocratic, that if the people wanted to continue electing a certain leader, then they should have the right to do that. But now I see the value in turnover in democratic systems, in leadership change, and allowing a new person to take the reins every so often. I think eight years in the United States is too low. I think they should let presidents run for a third term and give them a total of 12 years. And that's just because the United States is such a massive country that eight years seems like not enough time to really impact the system. But one thing I now absolutely agree with is term limits on senators, congressmen, and members of parliament. Yes, you can change the leader, but if you don't change everyone who's standing behind him, then how much change can you really accomplish? I don't know what's a good term limit for a congressman or member of parliament, maybe 20 years, but I'm not entirely sure what the right number is. Guys need to level up, you know, like Bernie Sanders has done, right? He started as a mayor, leveled up to congressman, leveled up to senator, and now he's running for the top job. Long story short, you're absolutely right, Kajartan. Parliament and any other type of institution should be dusted every so often. And with that, we are at the end of our 13th episode of Naples Ultra. One quick housekeeping thing is that I've decided to put a lot of my plans on hold. Plans such as creating a YouTube channel, expanding some vast marketing operation that I had. I simply just don't have the time to make my dreams a reality in that sector right now. Because the podcast is still fairly new, what I want to spend the bulk of my effort on is creating a good quality show that's intellectually stimulating and hopefully a little bit entertaining. If you'd like to reach out to Naples Ultra and write in a question, comment, or query, you can do so at my email, which is spencer at npupodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. The handle is at npupodcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to www.npupodcast.com and we have a great list of ways that you can support us. Another comment I can also make is now I can promise that any money given through Patreon will be directly reinvested back into the podcast. None of it no longer has to go to paying bills, buying food, any of that sort of stuff. That's all taken care of, so I can focus all donations in making the podcast better. And with that, my question isn't one that's going to be read out next podcast, but something I'm genuinely curious in knowing about. And that is, do you think we talk about the American primaries too much on this podcast and we need to tone it down a little bit to reference another controversy happening in the American primaries and spend more time focusing in on international issues? Anyway, thanks so much everyone for listening. In our next episode, we're going to be making an argument about why we need philosophy, rationality, and deep probing thought more than we've needed in quite some time.
So I hope you'll join us in two weeks for the 14th episode of Naples Ultra, Rationally Irrational. And now, let me take you out with the responses to last week's question. Liam writes in and says, I think the most important lesson that we can take from my country's history is that while attempting to bring change through violence and show of force may appear to be the quickest and best solution, the scars and divisions left behind by this method will long outlive those who perpetrate it. While the democratic process may appear slow and ineffective, it can achieve the same things that a violent solution could without leaving the scars behind. And his country is Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. Kajartan writes in and says, As an Icelander, I think what you could learn from very recent history, the economic collapse of 2008, which is the second biggest one after the American collapses, is that you must first listen to the skeptics. Andre writes in and says, In my nation of Romania, it has shown me that if we keep trying to accomplish our goal, you will succeed in the end. Independence of foreign powers succeeded in 1878, full unification of our people in 1918 with Greater Romania after numerous attempts to try against both the Ottomans and Hungarians, later known as the Habsburg Empire. Thanks for the great responses, everybody. I will see you all again in two weeks.